Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 171, Assessing Athanasius and His Arguments. In this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, I'm going to give my take on the arguments we heard in the last two episodes, his entire book on the Nicene Council. But the first thing we have to do, I think, is to address the elephant in the room. This is Athanasius' stubborn, habitual sin in defiance of New Testament teaching. Athanasius seems to have been, for decades, an unrepentant heretic in the New Testament sense of the word, that is to say, a divisive person, someone who can't stop causing divisions among believers, who loves to quarrel, and who places too much value on his own precious speculations. Many of his writings are absolutely soaked in contempt for his theological opponents. It's clear that he truly hates and despises them. As a Christian bishop, he stops short of cursing at them, but he constantly abuses and calls names, continually insulting their intelligence, sincerity, spirituality, honesty, and even humanity. He calls them dogs, lions, wolves, hares, chameleons, hydras, eels, cuttlefish, gnats, beetles, and leeches. He says they're not Christians, but rather unbelieving Jews and pagans. He calls them polytheists and atheists. He frequently abuses them as insane, deranged, confused, cowardly, inconsistent, and just all-around wicked. He grabs every piece of trash in the rhetorical garbage can and hurls it in their direction. I've been in the world of academic analytic philosophy for a while. I've been a professor for more than 16 years, and going even back to the time I started as a graduate student in 1993, I've constantly been around atheist philosophers. And never once have I met an atheist philosopher with half the nastiness and bile of Athanasius, or who energetically hates his opponents like Athanasius does. This is because Christian values about how to treat other people who are made in God's image have seeped into the academic culture. A person like Athanasius simply couldn't operate in today's academy, Christian or secular. But it's all okay, isn't it? Because Athanasius was right. And he was right about something all important, the very core of Christian theology. This is the assumption among many conservative Christian scholars today. They are, many of them, in a sense, Athanasians, in that they completely buy the core of his speculations, or at least their own version of them. As to his painfully obvious sin, they often excuse or downplay it. The more conscientious choose instead to ignore it. But no less than Paul has told Christians that we should be done with a quarrelsome divider. In Titus, he says, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show every courtesy to everyone. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His mercy, through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This Spirit He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I desire that you insist on these things, so that those who have come to believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, These things are excellent and profitable to everyone. But avoid stupid controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. After a first and second admonition, have nothing more to do with anyone who causes divisions, since you know that such a person is perverted and sinful, being self-condemned. Yes, Athanasius will be held accountable for his ferocious words. We can only hope that he somehow repented before the end of his life. Because as Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, the punishment for these very sins is severe. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, 
quarrels, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I'm warning you, as I've warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Strong stuff. But some will say, don't be so prissy. Those Arians were rough and weaselly and dishonest people, and they had a dangerous doctrine, and they had to be dealt with roughly by a rough man. Really? Paul teaches in his second letter to Timothy that patience and gentleness are called for. Shun youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, among with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, having nothing to do with stupid and senseless controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to everyone, an apt teacher, patient, correcting opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant that they will repent and come to know the truth, and that they may escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. And it's not just Athanasius against Paul. One of Jesus' inner circle, the disciple John, in his first letter, teaches that a man behaving like the Athanasius we heard in the last two episodes was at least at that time living in darkness and spiritual blindness. Now, by this we may be sure that we know him, if we obey his commandments. Whoever says, I have come to know him, but does not obey his commandments is a liar. And in such a person, the truth does not exist. But whoever obeys his word, truly in this person, the love of God has reached perfection. By this, we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk just as he walked. Whoever says, I am in the light, while hating a brother, is still in the darkness. Whoever loves a brother lives in the light, and in such a person there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates another brother is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and does not know the way to go, because the darkness has brought on blindness. But wasn't Athanasius doing God's work? Was he really in disobedience to the Lord Jesus? Yes, he was, and flagrantly so. Specifically, he disobeys Jesus' teaching about anger and contempt for others. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whosoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Strong stuff. And it should scare us when we feel that anger rising up in us when we're in some theological debate. Why is Jesus so vehement? Is he concerned about hurt feelings and just niceness? No, I would say that he's that vehement because it's a very serious and damaging sin to heap contempt on your brothers and sisters who have slightly different theological theories than you do. We dare not ignore this teaching of Jesus, and no Christian should make excuses for Athanasius' voluminous sins in this regard. And we need to be reminded that all of this hate was directed against his fellow Christians. Now, a partisan spin on the story is to say that only those who were fans of the Nicene Creed at this time were Christians, the others being horrible heretics, pseudo-Christians, practically devils. They're enemies of God and mockers of Christ, shameless blasphemers. And as Athanasius says, they're areomaniacs. They've been made insane by this crazy heresy arc. But in fact, everyone at the time knew that people like Eusebius of Caesarea were Christians. And large swaths of mainstream Catholic Christians looked askance at the creed's new language and at the speculative theology of Athanasius and his fellow travelers. These people that he's damning, these people that he's cursing, these people who he's saying are children of the devil, enemies of God, dumb animals, insane people, and so on, these people believed everything that Peter teaches in Acts 2. These people believed everything that's in the Apostles' Creed. How dare Athanasius declare them to be pseudo-Christians? 
He'll have to answer to Jesus for the damage he inflicted on Jesus' body, that is, on the church. Furthermore, just about every theological claim that Athanasius denounces as stupid, ridiculous, blasphemous, and obviously contradicted by the scriptures, just about every claim of that nature that he focuses all his fire on had in fact been held by a great many mainstream Christians, or at least by some of the leading teachers whom we can still read. But I'll get to his actual claims and his actual arguments later. Bottom line, Athanasius is no different in this respect than a fanatical, hateful, extreme Calvinist who literally damns all Arminians to hell, denouncing them as unbelievers. Such a contentious and divisive and hateful person should be subject to church discipline, and I think likely would be, because most Calvinists are not like that, and most Calvinists would see that behavior for the sin that it is. I just give that as an example. There are fanatics and divisive people of many different kinds. Problem was, Athanasius was the bishop in a one-bishop-per-city system. Really, he was not held accountable by anyone, and no doubt he liked it that way. He bravely battled emperors and defied a council of bishops that voted to depose him, and it would seem that a majority of people in his see, his constituents, were willing to tolerate and excuse his behavior. Perhaps all the controversies he was constantly embroiled in made him look like an important man to them. I don't know. In any case, my Christian friend, you must not take Athanasius as your model of how to navigate theological controversies. He's a shameful example of a hateful abuser who pollutes great and important subjects with his constantly oozing bile. Now, does his obvious sin mean that you should dismiss his claims and arguments? No. It's logically possible that through this nasty guy, God revealed or preserved true theology in its purest form. God is all-powerful, after all, and has been known to choose unusual vessels to accomplish his work. Still, we needn't pretend that hot emotions and good reasoning often go together. About Athanasius' reputation and influence, Dr. Andrew Louth singles out especially Athanasius' anti-Arian writings, namely, Orations Against the Arians, On the Nicene Decrees, that's the one that we heard, Letter to the Bishops of Egypt and Libya, History of the Arians, and On the Councils of Ariminum and Seleucia, Defense Before Constantius, and Defense of His Flight. Dr. Lau says, The influence of this body of texts has been enormous. They present a picture of Athanasius, the unsullied champion of orthodoxy, who at times stood virtually alone against heresy. Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius against the world. This picture was largely taken up by those, including the church historians, Socrates, Sozomen, and Theodoret, not to mention the Latins, Rufinus, and Jerome, who told the story of the Arian controversy at the end of the 4th century and in the 5th, when Nicene Orthodoxy had become settled by imperial policy. Much recent scholarship has been devoted to deconstructing the Athanasian account. That's right, and we won't go into the details here the bigger picture is this. We have to remember that not only did the winners write the history in this case of this whole controversy following Nicaea, but also most of what we know about Athanasius comes from his own vehemently partisan and sometimes very self-defensive writings. We need to take care not to be bedazzled by this image he's constructed and passed on to mainstream traditions. We need to judge Athanasius's theology and Christology on their own merits, as we would anyone's. So even though he's a terrible model of Christian behavior in theological controversy, even though he was a terrible bishop in some ways, in the way that he treated people, and the way he defied authority, still, we don't infer from these problems that his theological claims are false. That would be a fallacy. Am I saying that Athanasius was not a Christian? I'm saying he's not acting like a Christian in the book we heard. That would make me doubt that he was a born-again person. I hope he became one at some point. I hope he hadn't fallen away from being one. My Christian friend, how do you judge who counts as a real Christian? Is it someone who's defending the correct counsels or the correct speculative theology? Or do you go by behavior, like John and Paul and Jesus seem to? Let me end this segment by saying six good things about Athanasius. First of all, he was brave. That's just indisputable. 
He's traveling quite a lot, which was dangerous. He's running for his life. He's nothing if he isn't brave. He was zealous and sincere. I think he really believed that Arian theology and somewhat similar theologies were disastrous and had to be opposed. I don't think he waged the long polemical battle he did for political reasons or purely for selfish gain. Third, he's somewhat systematic and thorough. He does try to give a broad view of Christian theology and a kind of systematic understanding of God and Jesus and redemption. Fourth, he is sometimes willing to compromise on exact language. Now, not in the piece that we heard. In that piece, he's just doubling down on Nicaea and saying that it all comes down to these two phrases, that the Son is of the substance of the Father and that the two are one substance. But he hadn't argued that in several previous anti-Aryan works. He hadn't insisted on the language of Nicaea. He didn't seem to think it was all important, although he did want to argue against the so-called Arians' claims. And in some writings after this one, he seems at least for a time to back off the Nicene language, realizing that's just demanding too much. So he kind of goes back and forth, but to not insist on exact terms, if it's really the thoughts that we're trying to find agreement in, that's a good point. A fifth point is that he is aiming to capture the true teachings of the scripture, although I would hasten to add so are his opponents. And lastly, Athanasius provides us with many very important historical documents. And as far as I know, they're generally considered to be faithfully passed on. I'm not aware of him systematically corrupting any of them. So, for instance, this very book that we heard he appended to it a letter from Eusebius of Caesarea, written shortly after the council at Nicaea, giving Eusebius's take on the whole thing. Well, that's really interesting, and that's probably the single most important source for what actually went on at that 325 council. It's because of that letter, we think that it was the emperor himself who suggested the term homoousion, same essence or substance. And you can also see that Eusebius is not entirely comfortable with the language that was signed on to. He's being very careful to not infer too much from it. There are lots of other examples where he quotes decisions of councils. Even our knowledge of Arius' book, The Thalia, comes from Athanasius. His writings, although many of them are nasty and polemical, are just a goldmine for the historian. When the Trinity's podcast returns... My take on his arguments in this book. So comments on his claims and arguments in this book. This is, again, on the Nicene Council. It's the first book where he really goes to bat for the key term homoousion. However, as I mentioned, it's not his first anti-Aryan book. He had already written several of them, including his famous Discourses Against the Arians. In general, I would say that Athanasius is eloquent, and he knows how to employ rhetoric. He's not a very good arguer. While he is thorough and generous enough to seemingly quote his opponents, he generally doesn't seem to understand his opponents' motivations, and he really just can't manage an iota of sympathy for them. And this is in contrast even to many current-day scholars who, in a sense, they're kind of Athanasians themselves, but they do sympathetically understand people like Eusebius of Caesarea and sort of get what they're trying to do. Athanasius doesn't really betray any sympathetic understanding of his opponents. And while he knows how to harangue and pile on the rhetoric, his arguments are very frequently question-begging. In other words, he's assuming the thing that is supposed to be proved. Also, he can't stop himself from doing what I call taking a text dump. And he'll put, you know, 20 verses in a row, takes up, a whole column on a page. 
And of course, his opponents know about all these verses. And of course, they have slightly different interpretations of them. So it just proves nothing to just hammer the table and say the verses again. When I was presenting his book in the last two episodes, I almost edited out a couple of these passages because they're just tiresome, but I decided to leave the work complete. Near the start of this work, he says that Jesus' works proved him God and showed his deity. And of course, what he means by that is these showed that he obviously had the same essence as God. That looks like just a wild non sequitur. The conclusion doesn't seem to follow from the premises. Which of Jesus' works would require him to have the divine essence? Was it presenting divine teaching? The prophets did that. Was it raising the dead? The prophets did that. And we don't want to say that they were fully divine, right? Or shared the divine essence. Is it his being called Lord or his being called God? Why couldn't a being be called Lord and God and not have the divine essence? In fact, you see examples of both of those things in the scriptures. And you even have Jesus pointing one of them out in John 10, when he points out that people to whom the word of God came were addressed as gods. He mentions elsewhere Jesus' forgiving sins. And like Jesus' Jewish opponents, he says, who can forgive sins but God alone? That is, a fully divine being alone. You've got to be careful agreeing with Jesus' opponents. Why exactly is it impossible that a man who is the Messiah has been given authority by God to forgive sins? That seems to be what Jesus is asserting. Now, I'm sure he would say Jesus could not have accomplished his redemptive work unless he had the divine essence. Okay, we'll come back to that in a little bit. He doesn't get into that in this book, but before the end of the episode, I'll talk about kind of his background speculations about redemption and atonement. Now, I mentioned that most of the claims that he denounces as obviously stupid, unscriptural, and new were claims that were actually common in mainstream theology in earlier eras. One that always sets him off that he goes on endlessly about is that it's horrible and obviously wrong to call Jesus a creature. Well, Athanasius's favorite theologian, Origen, in fact, calls Jesus a creature more than once. He doesn't really think much of it. He also thinks that Jesus is divine, in a sense, derivative of the Father, and in a lesser way than the Father. But yeah, he calls Jesus a creature, and he doesn't seem to think that it's any bad thing to call him, or that it amounts to saying there's no important difference between Jesus and us. This is Origen. Athanasius is basically an originist. Very many of his points and many of his interpretations are from Origen, not necessarily directly, but remember, Origen was from Alexandria, and there were a series of Originist teachers in between Origen and Athanasius. Athanasius was born about 40 years after Origen died. How about that there was a time when the sun was not? Is that insane? Can any Christian just bear to hear those words? Well, come on now. What scholars call two-stage Logos theorists held that in eternity, God had his Logos, his reason within him. And then when it came time to create so that he wouldn't have to do it directly, God spoke out his word. And that's really when the pre-human Jesus comes to exist. This is pretty clearly stated in Tertullian. It seems to be presupposed everywhere by Justin and some of the other Logos theorists of that era. After all, even if you grant them the Logos theory reading of John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. When is that? At least it's saying that the Word existed at the time of creation, or maybe had to exist a little bit before the creation. Right, that's what the two-stage Logos theorists all thought. They didn't seem to think it was crazy or absurd to think that the Son was created before the creation and then God made all things through him. Athanasius goes on at some length mocking the idea that God only directly created the Son, so that's what makes the Son unique, that he comes directly from the hand of God, so to speak, and that God made other things only through him. Athanasius says, why can't God just create directly? Well, that's a good point, but he seems to have forgotten the Platonic theory behind a lot of this second century speculation in Logos theory. 
Briefly, it was propounded in Plato's dialogue called the Timaeus that for the universe to be created, there had to be some kind of in-between, a being which was neither created nor uncreated, because the ultimate source was just too transcendent somehow to get involved directly. And Justin seems to think that it's just absurd that God should ever interact directly with anybody, but he always has to do it through this intermediary, through the one Justin calls a second God, that is, the pre-human Jesus and then the human Jesus. Athanasius has a good point in that can't an omnipotent being do whatever he wants, interact with material creation and not be corrupted by it? Sure, right. But uh, you shouldn't be mocking as obviously stupid and as if unheard of this idea that God needed to go through an intermediary. In fact, Athanasius thinks he does. He thinks God does all things by the word, uh, although the relation between Jesus and God and Athanasius is just wholly unclear. Now, one of his endless points that he hammers over and over against the so-called Arians is that only on the Nicene view is Jesus going to be the true son of God. So he's going to be a phony baloney son or just a son in name only or in some unimportant sense or a sense in which we are sons. Only if the Nicene formula is accepted that the son is from the essence of the father and that they're one essence, can he be a true son? True son. Okay. This sounds like obvious question begging. But he expands and he says, there are only two ways in the scripture that the phrase son of God is used. One way implies essence sharing. And his example is human reproduction. If there's a human father and a son, they have to be same in essence. Now he's presupposing here ancient theorizing about human reproduction. And forgive me, I'm going to be frank here for a minute. The ancients speculated that semen was basically baby batter. And that has to be put inside the mother. And the mother basically just provides like a warm and suitable soil, as it were, in which the seed can grow. So they thought that when a baby is made, it is because the father has literally lost a portion of his material substance, the semen. A portion of his substance has become separated from him. And this is what becomes the new human But because it's from his substance, it will be same in essence. And of course, the Bible does mention fathers and sons and human reproduction. How could it not? The other way that scripture talks about sons of God, he says, and he seems to say the only other way that it talks about the phrase son of God is that it's a title that's earned by people who have acquired moral virtues. So basically, if you've been really good You can then be given this title, but of course, then it doesn't have anything to do with your essence. And so his argument then is, surely, surely you can't say that Jesus is in this second category where he just earns this title or he's an adopted son, basically. Surely he must have it by way of essence because of the way he not came into existence, but because of the reason that he exists. Of course, he doesn't think that Jesus came into existence at all, and he doesn't think he came to be by human reproduction, but he thinks that there is a kind of analog to human reproduction in eternal generation. So the difference is there is no material substance that's in common between son and father, and further, the father can't have any of his perfect substance separated from him, so he doesn't share a portion of it, he shares all of it. And so that's why the Son is holy, fully divine. He has all the divine substance, right? This is in contrast to Tertullian. If you read my paper about Tertullian or listen to the earlier podcast about that. But anyway, you can't think about divine generation in a merely human and earthly way. It has to happen in a divine way. But what's in common is that there's a sharing of essence, resulting in the offspring having the same status as the begetter. There's only two reasons Jesus could be called the Son of God, uh, and it can't be the one reason, so it must be the other. There are many later versions of this. I mean, one version of it would be either Jesus is really the Son of God, or he's just called the Son of God by courtesy. Or for that matter, he's really God, or he's just called God by courtesy, either way. The thing to say about this argument is it's just obviously a false dilemma. 
Those are not the only two senses in which the Bible talks about sonship. Of course, sometimes a king is called the son of God, and not because he's earned it by acquiring a ton of virtue. Israel is called the son of God, but not because it was always virtuous, just because it had been chosen to have this special relationship with the Creator. But about Jesus, Athanasius just overlooks two really obvious things. One use of Son of God is just equivalent to Messiah. You see this prominently, for instance, in Mark and in John. One of his big talking points is that you can't possibly say he's called Son of God for the second reason, because then he wouldn't be any different from us, or different from people who earned the title, basically. But that doesn't apply to this scriptural sense. If he's Son of God in the sense of Messiah, he's the only one. There's only one Messiah in the sense that we're talking about. There's others who are called the Anointed One, even kings and so on. But we all know in reading the Bible that the Messiah is this unique job title. If some of Son of God is a title for the Messiah, yeah, he's unique in many ways. But does that have to do with his essential nature? Athanasius would like it to, but I'm not sure why we should accept that. Does the scripture require that? He thinks it does, of course. The other thing that he ignores is a justification for calling Jesus the Son of God, which is seemingly implied by the angel who's talking to Mary in Luke 1. Basically, he says, because God is going to miraculously cause the pregnancy, because of that, therefore, he will be called the Son of God. Again, that would make him the Son of God in a unique sense. Does that imply that he has the same essential nature as God? Uh, the scripture doesn't say it, nor is it obvious that someone who's miraculously conceived would have to have the same essential nature as God. Why couldn't God do that sort of miracle and it just be a miraculously conceived human? So the argument falls flat. There's no reason at all to think there are only two reasons why Jesus could be called the Son of God. And there's really no reason to accept that he's just like us or not different from us in any important way unless he has the divine nature. Why couldn't he be much more important than us and very importantly different than us and be a human messiah? I don't know. We're off in speculation land here. If you say that he couldn't be messiah or he couldn't be raised and exalted and put in a place where he should be worshipped unless he's divine... I'm sorry, but that's not self-evident, and it's not clearly taught in Scripture. It's just a speculation. When the Trinity's podcast continues, his account of the proceedings at Nicaea. Let it suffice to say that Athanasius gives a very contentious, one-sided, and partisan account of the proceedings at Nicaea. For another view, see the letter from Eusebius of Caesarea that Athanasius helpfully preserved as an appendix to this book. I've got a link for that on the blog post for this episode. Clearly one of the motivations of his opponents is preserving monotheism. And what I find difficult about Athanasius is that I really don't understand why he thinks his view is monotheistic. In his view, God and the Son are two, but the Son doesn't count as a second God because his divine nature is of the same quality as God's, and that nature comes from God. But then, so does a human son have qualitatively the same nature as his father, yet they're still consistent with that two human beings, not one human being. Athanasius says that the Son is eternal, and that he's in the Father, whatever that means, and he says that they're inseparable. Okay, but why, in his view, can't there be two eternal, inseparable gods? After all, each one has the entirety of the divine essence, and they're distinct. But having the divine essence, that's sufficient for being a god, right? For anything, whatever, if it has the entirety of the divine essence, it's a god. 
by definition of essence. Are we supposed to think that they're the same God? I don't even understand if Athanasius thinks they're the same God or not. He merrily charges his opponents with polytheism in his third discourse against the Arians, chapter 25, but it's wholly unclear how Athanasius can escape that charge. The so-called Arians that he's denouncing follow the earlier tradition of defending Christian monotheism by emphasizing the uniqueness of the Father. This is the strategy you see in all the main Catholic writers of the 2nd and 3rd centuries. But by relentlessly emphasizing the qualitative essential sameness of the Father and Son, Athanasius has cut himself off from that defense. He can't say, like some of them say, that only the Father is eternal or only the Father is good through himself, only the Father is divinity itself, or really fully and underivatively divine. He can't say only the Father is all-powerful and all-knowing. Nor does Athanasius even, so far as I can see, take the step of saying that it's the whole Trinity which is the one God. Rather, it's the Father who is the one true God, but so also the Son is true God. And by the way, the Son is different than the Father. And the two of them are equally divine. And this is monotheism. Seemingly, just because Athanasius means it to be so and says it to be so. If only monotheistic intentions and assertions were enough to have a coherent monotheism. Intending it to be coherent doesn't make it so. Saying that it's consistently monotheistic doesn't make it so. No wonder his opponents were not convinced. Another prominent argument of Athanasius, which you see in chapter 4, for instance, is that if there was a time before the Son existed, God would then be mute and stupid, because God would be without his word and his wisdom. This is a bizarre argument. It seems to assume that the eternal Logos is both a divine property, like wisdom, and a being, a self, a personal being, which can be all-knowing, all-powerful, and create, and so on. This just looks like an absurd claim. If I told you that my daughter was my sense of humor, would you believe me? My daughter existed way back in 1975 when I was five years old, but at that time she was just my sense of humor, but now she's my sense of humor and also my daughter. No, I mean, a sense of humor is a quality or a power that I have, or a tendency or something like that, and a thing like that can't be a being, can't be a daughter. Now, I might be trying to say that her sense of humor is like mine, or that I taught her all about humor, or other various understandable things, but to say that she's literally my sense of humor looks like a piece of nonsense. If God is a perfect being, then even if he doesn't have his son, he'd still be perfect, and he'd still have his attribute of wisdom, etc. You do see this argument in earlier writers and earlier originists. I haven't quite found it in origin. It might be in there somewhere. Although in his On First Principles, Book 1, Chapter 2, he gives his own half-baked philosophical argument that the generation of the Son has to be eternal, and it goes like this. And can anyone who has learned to regard God with feelings of reverence suppose or believe that God the Father ever existed even for a single moment without begetting this wisdom? For he would either say that God could not have begotten wisdom before he did beget her, so that he brought wisdom into being when she had not existed before, or else that he could have begotten her, and what it is profanity to even say about God that he was unwilling to do so, each of which alternatives, as everyone can see, is absurd and impious. That is, either that God should advance from being unable to being able, or that, while being able, he should act as if he were not and should delay to beget wisdom. That's a perfectly understandable argument, but it's really unconvincing. Why couldn't God have a power and not exercise it? Why would he be obligated to exercise his power to generate wisdom? Anyway, that's Origen's brilliant speculation about why the Son's generation has to be eternal and not just before creation, as many earlier Logos theologians had held. 
For his part in this book, Athanasius throws out a few proof texts for eternal generation, which are wholly unconvincing. He quotes a psalm where God says, My heart uttered a good word. And another that says, From the womb before the morning star I begat thee. But of course, these are not going to prove eternal generation. It's not clear that the first is about Jesus at all. And the second one just says that this happened before the morning star. But he's going to see what he wants to see in the scripture. And he quotes John 8, 42, where Jesus says he proceeds from the Father. See, proceeds, right? What could that be except eternal generation? Of course, modern translations just have Jesus saying that he came from God. In other words, was sent by God. He's on a divine mission. It's got nothing to do with eternal generation. But, you know, there really aren't any clear texts that do have to do with it. Another issue that comes up is he claims in this book that a main objection of his opponents was simply that the Nicene terminology was unscriptural, that is, non-scriptural. In other words, that the words weren't in the Bible. Surely this is a straw man. I mean, at least his best opponents would never have given an objection like that because, as he points out, they too found it useful to employ words that are not in the scriptures. Well, why hammer this point then? This can't be something on which their theology depends. Now, about chapter 6, this is where, at some length, he cites authorities in support of the Council of 325. You have to keep in mind what he's doing. He's really urging that the Council in 325 wasn't saying anything new at all, but was simply defending the faith always believed. So he goes scraping around in earlier material, trying to find anyone saying that God and his Son were the same essence, or say that the Son is of the essence of God. He ends up quoting Origen and two later Alexandrians influenced by Origen and then one bishop of Rome. The Originist Theonostus, who was an earlier Alexandrian teacher, says basically that the Son eternally exists because of God and that the Son's essence or reality sprang from the Father's essence. Ah, that's kind of, sort of what he's looking for. Dionysius of Rome, in the quotation given, essentially defends the Originist doctrine of eternal generation and then he quotes Origen doing the same. The closest he really gets is the earlier Bishop of Alexandria, who says in the quotation that Christ was one in essence with God. Well, that's pretty close. But of course, really all that's been shown is that some previous Catholics believed in eternal generation and were willing to use the term usia as describing how the Son was the same as the Father. But of course, the earliest person, his Origen, who died in 254, so this doesn't come anywhere close to showing that Nicaea was merely protecting the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, and especially doesn't show any sort of authoritative or widespread use of that language. And as of the last chapter of the book, I'll pass over his harangues about his opponents calling God the Father unoriginated. I don't really think there's much of interest there. Let's step back, though, and ask this question why is he so concerned about the deity of Christ, understood as requiring the Nicene formulas? His assumption, which he doesn't explain or defend in this short book, is that only a fully, wholly divine Christ, a Christ with the divine usia, could possibly save us. Why? Well, as I understand it, and in this I'm relying on the scholarship of Frances Young in her book, From Nicaea to Chalcedon, 2nd edition, it's something like this. He thinks that the Logos is like the universal of reason or rationality. And so for there to be rational beings, there has to be the Logos. And somehow rational beings like the original man and woman, they had to participate in rationality through the Logos. He thinks that by the fall, humankind de-rationalized itself by separating from God and God's Word, the eternal Logos. It did something to humanity, something to human nature, seemingly thought of as a kind of platonic universal. 
Now, when the Logos took this nature to himself, either at that point or at least after he was raised, this brought about some transformation in humanity, in this human nature. It restored rationality to it in virtue of the union with the Logos. In a sense, it recreated humanity. We would have had a divine, godlike life if not for the fall. And it's the incarnation, maybe together with the death and resurrection, that has redivinized humanity. Salvation, he understands as deification. This I don't have any objection to. Second Peter says that the redeemed are made partakers of the divine nature. Of course, a human like you and me could never be made into the uncreated creator of all else. But divinization doesn't mean being divine in the same sense that God is divine. What does it mean? Well, it means at least having eternal life, being immortal, presumably getting a big upgrade in terms of goodness and maybe also power and knowledge. So just being a much greater, more godlike being than we are now. You can call salvation deification or divinization. There's a long history of doing that. And if you want to hear a real scholar expound on that, go back and listen to podcast 59 with Dr. Carl Mosier. And in podcast 60, he talks about the theme of deification in the Bible. But there are a couple of what I think are bizarre speculations in Athanasius' scheme. One is that for humans to be saved, something had to be done to humanity or there had to be a new humanity. Humanity, if there is such a thing, conceived of like a universal, that is like a platonic form, those things are supposed to be eternal and unchanging and unchangeable, in fact, timeless. Why should any Christian have to think that there's this thing, humanity, conceived of as a universal, and that redemption involves some change wrought upon that thing? And this isn't something clearly taught in Scripture. It's not self-evident. It's not even necessarily taught by a lot of earlier Catholic tradition. Irenaeus, of course, famously has some very dark speculations on this topic. But the king of all his speculations, I think, is this, that to divinize, you have to be fully divine. Think about this now. To divinize humans, that is, to give us eternal life, to make us maybe sin-free, more powerful, more knowledgeable than we are, to make us divine in a lesser sense, not in the God sense where you're essentially perfect in every way. To make us divine, a being has to be fully divine. Why? There could be a speculation, a philosophical assumption there that to give someone a quality, you have to have that quality yourself. That's not true. An internet troll makes people mad and is often not mad himself. But even if it were true, why would you have to have full-blown divinity just to give this lesser kind of divinity to the saved? I don't know. We're way off in speculation land. Now, people who defend Athanasius' general approach, they too often assume that only a fully divine Christ could save us. But in many cases, they've replaced his speculations with later ones, such as that there's an infinite debt that had to be paid and things like this. Anyway, any such theories about redemption are not clearly taught in Scripture. They're not self-evident. And as far as I can tell, they haven't been proved by any convincing argument from authoritative biblical sources. So then you can't say that anyone who doesn't hold this is not a Christian. You can't try to make your own speculative theories essential to the faith. You don't see the apostles doing that. You don't see many, countless, more careful Christian leaders doing that. You see them preaching the gospel, the New Testament gospel. If we've elevated our speculations about how redemption works to a place above the gospel that you see Peter preaching in Acts 2, I think there's a problem. It wasn't ours to change. There's nothing inherently sinful about speculating and theorizing, but when you have to bully and harangue to try to get other people to accept your speculations, something's gone wrong. So that, for now, is my take on Athanasius's On the Nicene Council. On the whole, not a persuasive book. If you're already in his camp, you're going to think it's pretty neat, although you might be embarrassed by the tone of the whole thing. 
if you're one of his mainstream Christian opponents, you would be completely unimpressed by it because there really isn't any convincing, non-question-begging argument in it. He'll quote, the Father and I are one. He'll quote, the Father's in me and I'm in the Father and say, see, how could he possibly say that unless they were one in Usia? But of course, that never has been clear. Eventually, Athanasius's perspective managed to carry the day. We'll eventually hear how that was. Actually, it was after Athanasius's time. But what about this point in our story? This is probably the year 352. Next week, we'll pick up the story of this controversy and look at what happened just before Athanasius's book came out and just after it. This week's thinking music has been the track Zest by Bassmatic. As always, at the blog post for this episode, there's a link where you can hear or download this entire track. I'd like to send out a special thanks today to David in the UK for his gift through PayPal. Thank you, David. And also, thanks to all of you for your prayers and your patience as I've been rebuilding the Trinity's website after getting terribly hacked. I'm still chipping away at a few things. I hope it'll be better than before when I'm done. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share the podcast on social media. Another thing you can do is give us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can support the podcast by giving us a one-time or a monthly donation through PayPal. Just look for the orange buttons on the right side of any blog post. Lastly, make your voice heard. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our very active Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. Don't forget then to share, to rate, to chip in when you can, and to talk back. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.